Hi. All right, so we're in part two of a series called Ecclesia, and if you have no idea what Ecclesia means, it's the Greek word for the word church. And so the, the thing we're trying to aim at here is we want to look at the first century church as early as we could go back and see what we could learn from them. And so uh, the first time the word ecclesia is used in the Bible is when Jesus talks about it. This is Matthew chapter 16. He says this, I will build my ecclesia, that's the word right there, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hades meaning death. He's saying, no matter how many times you try to stop this movement by killing Christians or whatever it may be, the church will go on. And so last week we talked about the power of the church, how it overcame the craziest obstacles, how uh, there was Caesars in Rome and they were trying to kill off these people and they were trying to stop the movement, but they couldn't, right? <clears throat> but here's the thing, okay, because I'm hoping last week, and if you weren't here last week, you, know, you could catch it online. I hope that by the end of listening to last week's sermon, you got this idea that the church is remarkable, Jesus predicted it to be remarkable, and it's still around 2,000 years later, and the Roman Empire is no more. <clears throat> okay, so if the power of the church is that it cannot be destroyed, not even death could end it, right? Then that's a good thing, right? Like Superman. Superman cannot be stopped. Well, except some bad movies could actually end Superman. But, but you know, like, this, the, the, but, but even Superman has a kryptonite, Right? Even Achilles has a heel. Like, there's always a weakness to everything that we could think about. <clears throat> and so the question is, what is the weakness of the church? If not even death could destroy the church, is there something that can actually destroy the church? And the answer is yes. And it's something that we've discovered over time, but then Jesus knew about it from the very beginning. And then the Paul the Apostle, who was the first Christian, one of the first Christian leaders, he knew about it also. So let me talk a little bit about this guy named Paul the Apostle. Okay, so he wasn't around the time when Jesus was doing his thing, right? He kind of came a few years later, but he met, he saw the resurrected Jesus, and he was like, my life has changed, I've got to do something about this. And so what he did was, from the year 49 to the year 52, so for about three years, he decided to leave his city, where he, you know, his headquarters, which is a place called Antioch, and he decided to travel around Europe, like Turkey to Europe, and he decided to start planning these churches, these things called ecclesias. So I want to show you a map right here. Okay, so he started from over here, uh, Antioch, and then he traveled up and went through this whole region called Galatia, went to Philippi, then he went west with Thessalonica, then to Corinth down, and he crossed the Asian Sea, and he went to Ephesus. And he basically, wherever he went, he told about the Jesus story and how it's a revolution and how it changes the way that we look at each other and how we need to love one another. And people bought into it. They're like, yeah, I want to be a part of that. But as soon as he got back to Antioch, he started hearing stories about these churches that he planted not doing so good. And it was like, well, what, what happened? And as he started hearing these reports, he realized that he has to go back and address these issues. But, you know, they didn't have cars back then. They didn't have airplanes back then. So he instead decided to write letters to them. And that's why we have books like Galatians. And we have the book called Philippians. We have the book called Ephesians. Like he's, he, wrote, he wrote these books that we have in our Bibles today. We're looking at other people's mail, basically. We're reading these books to find out what the problems were and what his solutions for those problems, what, what his remedy was, okay? And so, for example, in Galatia, the problem there was, well, there's a group of people called the Judaizers who showed up at the doors of the church in Galatia, and they were basically telling people, the way you're doing this thing is all wrong. You have to do it our way. You have to follow all the rules of the Bible or else you're not a good Christian. And so the church started to divide. And so Paul writes a letter saying, no, 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 those Judaizers have it wrong. Um, um, 
Philippi. Philippi is actually a city where a lot of the retired soldiers that work for the emperor, they retire to. That's where they like to hang out. So they're very loyal to their, to their empire, right? And in the midst of that, we have a group of people called Christians. And these Christians say, no, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so you can imagine how they're being attacked all the time. So Paul sees that problem, writes a letter and says, the way you're going to overcome that you know, problem is by sticking together. I don't know if you're starting to see a pattern here. Um, the Ephesians, Ephesians, they had some problems there of where um, there, were, there was an issue of prejudice that was happening, basically racism. And we'll talk more about this next week, okay? But, but Paul basically says, here's how you overcome that. It's by making sure that you know that you're actually one. Are you guys seeing a pattern here? Um, Cor- Corinth. Corinth has some really, really, really big issues. And the way that Paul decided to deal with that is like, well, there's people who are like, yeah, we're all Christians, but I like that person's teaching, like that person's preaching, like that person's thing, you know? And he's like, no, 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 we're not all separate. We're all one, please. He's like, well, we're rich, we're poor. It's like, yeah, 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 but you should be one. And so what Paul and Jesus and we have discovered over the years is that, yeah, that death cannot destroy the church. That's true. The more that the, the Roman Empire tried to persecute the church, the faster it grew. And that's actually true today. The, the countries that persecute the church the most are the ones that are growing the fastest. But on the flip side of that, what we also dis- discovered is that disunity in the church can kill it. That's our kryptonite. If the people of the church cannot get along, then that's the end of the church. If we disagree on some petty thing here and that divides the church, then that's the end of the ecclesia. So let me show you the map again. So after Paul does all this stuff, right, he writes letters, he's trying to manage all these churches, eventually he hears that there are other churches that are popping up that he didn't plant. As a matter of fact, he went to all these different places like Thessalonica and, and, and uh, parts of Greece, Athens. And from that, it turns out people were visiting at the time and they were like, hey, this is cool. When we go home, uh, we want to start our own church. And so there's a person who came from Rome, went back to Rome, and he started a, a, a community there. And so there is now a church in Rome. And so next slide. So Paul discovers that there's a church over there and he starts to hear reports about that church. And it turns out, there's disunity there. So Paul decides to write a letter to them, and that's called the Book of Romans. We have that book in the Bible, too. <laughs> We're just going through his mail. <laughs> All right, okay, okay, now here's the cool thing about Rome, okay? It's one of the last things that, that Paul ever wrote. So he had practice. He looked through Philippi, Corinth, and Galatia. He looked at all these issues, and he addressed each, of, each and every single one of them. And after a while, he's like, you know, I'm getting pretty good at this. I know how to solve this problem of disunity. So he takes everything that he's learned over the years and he consolidates it into one letter, that's Romans, and he sends it to Rome saying, hey, I'm going to come, I'm going to visit you one day, and that happens years later. He's like, I'm going to visit you one day, but before, you know, before I get there, I want you to take a look at this and start practicing the things I'm writing to you about. That's the book of Romans. So when you read through the book of Romans, you're going to find bits and pieces of things that you've probably read in other books. So we're going to be talking about that a little today. So, what is the problem that Rome was facing? This is what happened. So eventually, uh, so these yellow dots right here represents the Jews. Okay, so in Rome, there were synagogues that preexisted the church. There were synagogues. There were Jews that were living in, in Rome. Okay, and, you know, and as soon as people came here and said, hey, I have some stories about Jesus to tell you, and they heard this story, they're like, wow, we want to become Jesus people. So these synagogues transformed into churches. Now, these Jews who live in these synagogues, they're saying like, well, if we're a church, that means that we no longer discriminate people based on, you know, 
race, right? So we're going to start letting non-Jews into our community, and those people are called Gentiles, okay? So what happened, next slide, is that these Gentiles, they moved into these communities, and they started hanging out together. And these Gentiles far was a smaller group than the Jews. The Jews were like, hey, welcome to our community. Here's some kosher food. Here's how we live our lives. But here's the problem. These, these Gentiles, they don't know any kosher laws. They're like, we eat pork. We love pork, right? And, and the, these Jews, they like to take Saturdays off. They're like, it's mandatory for us to rest on Saturdays. These Gentiles, like, we work seven days a week. We don't understand this. You know, so they were together in vicinity, but they weren't getting along. And then at that time, they had a Caesar. The Caesar was Caesar Claudius. By all historical accounts, he was a crazy guy, okay? So you don't have to know too much about him, right? But around AD 50, give or take a year, Caesar Claudius said, okay, I'm sick and tired of the Jews in, my, in, in Rome. I'm going to kick all of them out of here. So he expels all the Jews out of Rome. So this is what happens to the church. So <clears throat> all of them were pushed out, and now we have a church that used to be a synagogue that's filled with non-Jews, Gentiles. And as they continue to grow this movement, next slide, more and more Gentiles start to join the church movement. Now, five years after these people were expelled, the Jews were expelled, they were eventually allowed to come back. So next slide. But when they came back, they discovered, wait a minute, there's way more of Gentiles than there are of us. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what should we do about this? And as they were mingling, they are like, this isn't how we left the church. Like, this is, I don't recognize. Like, the Jews are like, I don't remember this place being like this. I thought we had some certain practice in place, but we don't have that here anymore. And so all of a sudden, these Jews felt like they didn't belong here. So what happened? Next slide. They eventually separated. Paul heard about this story and said, we need to fix this because disunity is the Achilles heels of the church. This is Superman's kryptonite. This is the thing that could close down this church. We got to do everything we can because Paul, in Paul's mind, he believed that more than anything, church is going to be the thing that revives this world. It's going to make the world a better place if the church is the church. But if the church dies before it could ever do that, then, you know, it's like, well, what is the world going to do? So, <clears throat> so about one to two years after this whole thing takes place, Paul writes a letter to them, and that's called the Book of Romans. So what I'm going to do today is we're going to be looking at parts of that letter that Paul wrote and see what we could extract from it, what we could learn from it on how to overcome division in the church. And you're like, wait, God, so division in the church, we're fine, aren't we? Westlight, I mean, we've been doing pretty good at this church. It's like, yeah, yeah. But you wouldn't believe it, okay? Because while we smile at each other and we get along with each other, if you were to sit down face-to-face, knee-to-knee at a table, and we start talking about our core beliefs, where we stand politically, what we believe about certain lifestyles, I guarantee you the majority of you will disagree with one another. It's just that we haven't had those deep conversations that you haven't really discovered what you guys disagree on yet. And the day that you find out that you disagree, almost like polarizing, like you're like, I completely disagree with you, buddy, right? When you get to that point, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to overcome that? And so Paul talks about that in the book of Romans. So we're going to be looking at chapters 12 all the way to 14. And you're like, whoa, we're going to read through that many chapters? No, because I've done you guys a favor, okay? So we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, and this is called the KSV, Katz's Summarized Version, okay? <clears throat> so we can save a lot of time. Now, I'm going to summarize it in a way that addresses the point that we're trying to make, but there's a lot more there, so I encourage you guys to go home and read it if, you know, 
if you want to, okay? But maybe one day we'll do a whole series on the book of Romans, but Romans is one of my favorite books. So here we go. Verses one and two, my summary. Don't treat each other as the world expects you to. The world has taught us how to treat each other. Stop doing, the, doing it that way. Worship God by sacrificing yourself for one another. He calls it a living sacrifice. This is what he's saying. He's saying, the way that people worship God is by singing songs, sacrificing animals, and stuff like that. It's like, from this day on, the way you're going to worship God is by sacrificing yourself to one another. You're going to do things for one another, considering yourself less than the other person. Because what the world teaches us is, if you're rich, then you must be better. You know, if you, if you have this level of education, then you must be better than the person who doesn't, right? If you live in this kind of house, if you drive this kind of car, if you're this or that, then you must be better than the other person. And he says, you, you have to stop treating people that way. That's what the world teaches us. We are not going to live according to that. The way we're going to worship God is by treating one another as if they are better than us. That's what 1 and 2 is saying. Then the next few verses, 3 through 8, he says, don't think you're better than the other. Use your talents to serve one another. Paul goes to this list of all these things. Like He's like, if you have the talent, if you have the gift of prophesying, then use that gift to serve somebody that is different than you. That's your act of love. If you have the gift of serving, like you like to do the tedious things, right? if you just enjoy doing that kind of stuff, use that. God has given you that talent so you can serve the other person to show them that, that you really value them. If you have the gift of teaching, and people are having a hard time understanding stuff, I want you to use that gift to teach somebody in your church so that they know that even though you guys are different, they, you know, that, that you value them. And he goes to this list. If your gift is encouraging, let them encourage. If, if your gift is to be generous, to give, he's like, give generously because that's the way that God wants you to love other people. If, they, if your gift is to lead, use that gift. Lead other people, you know, give them leadership, teach them how to survive, you know. If your gift is to show mercy, he says, then show mercy. So he's saying, God has given you certain types of gifts. You're really good at certain things. Use those things to serve other people, and that is how you're going to consider others better than you. Then he closes out chapter 12 by saying, so I want you to love sincerely. Forgive one another. You can, you can hear the voice of Paul in chapter 12. He's saying like, guys, this is so important. Make sure that you treat the other person as if they're better than you. Respect them. Do everything you can to melt away any kind of, you know, walls that you see around you. Do whatever you can to do that. And then he moves on to chapter 13. In the first part of chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, he says this, Love even the political figures that oppress you. He says, these people who you're, you're like, okay, but they're exempt from me loving them, right? He's like, no, 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 no. Even the people who oppress you, even the people who are governors, and even the Caesars, you know, all these people who are there to make sure you, your life is like hell, you know, he's saying, believe it or not, if they're in that place of power and God hasn't pulled them out, off of that pedestal, then maybe he's supposed to be there. And so you better respect that person. It's like, oh, I don't know if I could love that person like that. It's like, next part. Then he says from 8 through 10, if you love radically, you're actually fulfilling all the commandments of the Old Testament. It's like, I can't, you know, like, I can't, like, what... Loving this person might look like I'm, I'm breaking some of the laws that I, was, I grew up with. And it's like, no, no, no. If you're actually loving somebody sacrificially, then you're actually fulfilling all 600 plus laws in the Old Testament. And then the final section of chapter four, 13 says, so let's all be like Jesus. The word that, that, that uh, Paul uses here is you have to take off your old self. He's, acting, he, he's using language that says that the way that we used to be before you encounter Jesus is like clothing. And now we're taking off that old self, and now we're putting on Jesus. Like, that's the new person that we're meant to be. 
And if we're going to act like Jesus, if we're going to put on Jesus, then that means that we have to love people sacrificially. And then we go into chapter 14, and we're going to slow down, because from here on out, I'm going to read the passage to you, okay? And this is very important. What Paul does is he comes up with two examples, two specific examples that were splitting the church in the first century, and he addresses both of them. So the first one goes like this. He says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. So he's talking about how in our faith, in Christianity, there's the important stuff, we'll call that tier one, okay, which is love God and love others. This is something that you cannot dispute, okay? These, these are things that you cannot, okay, and so um, the two times that Jesus used the word church, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus only used the word church twice in all of his teachings. The first time I put it on the screen before, you, you know, I said, you know, um, not even Hades, not even death could destroy um, the ecclesia of the church, right? The second time Jesus uses the word church is when he says, when it comes to people that you get in a fight with, make sure you confront them one-on-one, then two-on-one, then, you know, like, he gives you instructions on how to make sure that you can maintain unity in the church, right? So when it comes to church, Jesus already had in mind the two things that are most important, right? He said, when it comes to, you know, the, the strength of the church, that's worshiping God. Like, I want you to make sure that, that you don't lose that. But the second thing I, want, I don't want you to lose is how to get along with one another. He said, those are not disputable. You have to maintain those no matter what it is. And Paul says, but the things that's separating this church, the thing that's bringing disunity in the church of, of Rome, are not disputable matters. It's actually, you guys are splitting over tier two things. Well, what are they? Okay, so in order to illustrate this point, I need two volunteers. You don't have to do anything except for writing a few words on, on this sheet of paper right here, okay? And standing here, I'm going to point to you, okay? So I need somebody who loves to eat meat. Okay, people are pointing to Mitchell, so Mitchell, please come up. You hold this? You get to keep that sheet of paper. Um, blue or black? Okay. I need somebody who loves to eat salad, vegetables. <laughs> Clarice, are you volunteering your mom? Clarice, all right, okay, here you go. This is yours. All right, so let's read the next verse. Here we go. It says, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. So on your sheet of paper, on the top half, because we're going to write something on the bottom also, I want you to write, like, eat meat. On the top half of your paper, I want you to write, eat vegetables. Okay. Um, I don't know if you want to write on something. Okay, so this is... Oh, she's doing it, yeah. <laughs> All right. So as they're writing this, we're going to read the next part, okay? And this is my way of making it more visual so that... Because there's two characters in this, in, this, in this story, and I need to be able to point so you know exactly who, what I'm talking about. Okay, so next verse. The one who eats everything, that's you... You eat everything because you eat meat, right? <clears throat> Must not treat with contempt the one who does not. That would be Clarice. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God accepts them both. Okay, so hold up your signs. All right, okay. So this is what's going on. In the first century, 
you can't go to Ralph's and pick up a piece of meat or go to Costco and say, hey, this is cheap. I'm going to buy the whole rotisserie. Like, you can't do that back then. Back then, meat was very, very expensive. Okay? So if you're like, I feel like eating steak today, it's not like you dig deep into your pockets and just buy it. You have to raise your own cow. And if you were to buy it off of somebody, it's even more expensive than that. Okay? So, so now to be clear, both sides like to eat meat. Okay? But why does she prefer to eat vegetables? It's not for health reasons. They didn't know all this stuff back then. The, the, the reason why is this, okay? So let's just say he is a Gentile and she is a Jew, okay? And being a part of the same church, you're like, you know what? I'm going to do, do this church a favor. I'm going to have a church-wide barbecue. So I'm going to go to the nearby marketplace and I'm going to look around to see if there's any meat on sale. And as you're walking down, you're like, that's too expensive, that's too expensive, that's kind of shady, I'm not going to eat that. Oh, and then you come across this place where meat is on, it's like really good quality meat, and it's really, really cheap. And you're like, why is this so cheap? And what you discover is that it is the pagan temple that's selling the meat. Why? Because people brought these animals to worship Artemis, okay, and they slaughter the animal, and they're like, what do we do with the meat? So what do they do? They're like, we, we, it's just going to sit here. We should just sell it and make a profit, but we'll sell it for a super discounted price. So Mitchell, seeing all this meat on the, on the ground, he's like, okay, I think this is, well, I guess they had tables back then, right? Okay, on the table, and they're like, oh, all right, I'm going to buy all this for a cheap price, and I'm going to bring it back to church and serve everybody. And now you are like, oh, look at that meat. It's so good. I love meat, especially that portion of the cow. That is like the most tender, right? You're excited. But then you find out that that meat that Mitchell bought is actually meat that was sacrificed to idols. And you're like, <gasps> the way I was brought up, I, you know, I stay away from stuff like that. Because by eating meat that's sacrificed to idols, that's dedicated to idols, you feel like you're actually violating some of the rules that you were brought up with. Like, oh, if I'm going to worship God, and God is the only God, then uh, I shouldn't be even participating in this. So you're like, I can't believe, shame on you, shame. <laughs> And you're, but, but this is what you're thinking. But my God is strong. Jesus has conquered all. My God is better than every God. And like, as a matter of fact, these idols, they're not even real. They're just pieces of carvings of stone and wood. My God is real. So I have no problem eating this meat because it means nothing to me. So do you see how there's this divide that's happening? Paul tells them, when you're eating meat, right, and she's not, don't judge her for not eating meat because you're thinking like, she has a very low view of God, you know, because God, you know, he's so powerful, he overcome all, you know, right? But over here, you're thinking, he's not really a Christian. If he was, he would know that this meat, you know, would, would was, is, you know, just, right? Okay, shame on you. Okay. And then he says, don't judge each other because Jesus is saying, God has accepted her and God has accepted him. God has accepted both. There's no reason for you guys to say, you don't belong to this community, you don't belong to this community. I've accepted both. And Paul continues that idea in the next verse. He says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? Now, Mitchell is a servant of Jesus. When he said, I want to make Jesus my Lord, that makes Mitchell a servant of Jesus, right? When Clarice said, yes, my background is in Judaism, but from this day on, I decided to follow Jesus, you're saying, he is my Lord, I'm his servant. So he's saying, who are you as a servant to judge somebody else's servant? Right? It's like, it's like if I was a slave and I went to somebody else's master and said, hey, you know, you're a slave? Not good enough. Like, you have no right to do that. Right? So then he says, 
to their own master, servants stand and fall. It's like, it's up to the master to decide if this person is good enough to be my servant or not, right? And then what does he say? He says, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. He's saying, if you're asking Jesus to stand on the side of the one that is the better servant, he's standing on both sides. He allows both to stand. Okay, we're not done with you guys yet, okay? So, so what he's saying, now, by the way, if you're like an avid Bible reader, you'll know that Paul talks about this in one of his previous letters to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians, right? And in there, he gets into, goes into more detail. And basically what he's saying is some people have strong faith and some people have weak faith, okay? And so this is what he says. There's different levels of faith. Now, if we're giving grades, okay, he's like, okay, let me grade you based on how well you're doing in your faith, okay? He will probably give you a C, it's okay. This is make-believe, okay? So, so here we go. C. C is this. Abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols, because I am loyal to God. It's like, I will not falter. I will follow all the commands of the Old Testament because I am loyal to my God. Right? That's you. And we, C is a passing grade. So we all like, good job, right? But then you, thinking like, that's a C student over there. Paul would point to you and say, yeah, but you're not an A student either. You actually get a B, which is this. You eat meat because I know idols are not real. Now, what do these two views have in, have in common? Hmm? Oh, yeah, they choose. It is very divisive. But the thing here is they're only concerned about their relationship to God, and they're not concerned about the relationship to each other. They're thinking, as long as I'm eating the food that I'm supposed to eat, then my relationship with God is secure, without really thinking about your relationship to other people, right? Over here, he's saying, as long as I know that my God is powerful, that he's more powerful than any idols, right, then my relationship with God is secure. Paul says, if you want to get an A in your faith, the highest level of faith, he says this, worship God through the way you treat one another. Remember how he started this chapter? He said, the way that we're going to worship God is not through sacrificing animals, not through singing songs, not through doing these things, not by giving things to other people. The way that we're going to love one, uh, worship God from now on is by sacrificing to one another, giving ourselves to the other person, loving others as if they are better than ourselves. So he says, if you, want to, if you want to ace this thing called Christianity, then what you have to remember is your relationship with one another is how you worship God. Your horizontal and your vertical are connected, and you can't separate the two. But he's like, wait a minute. I have every right to eat whatever I want to eat because I believe that God has destroyed all the you know, rivals and all that kind of stuff, right? What Paul is saying is, I know you have the right to eat whatever you want, but in the name of love, are you willing to set that aside for the sake of your neighbor? When you are eating meat in front of her, she's feeling like, like okay, I know you, you're, you think that it's okay to eat meat, but uh, every time you eat meat in front of me, I feel like a part of my soul is being chipped away. Right? But at the same time, every time you bring food from the marketplace right? And he's trying to be generous to everybody. And you're like, no, thank you. Because, you know, right? Every time you say no to his, his gifts to you, you're like, you're, he's like, it's chipping away my soul that, that you don't accept the gifts that I brought to you. This is my way of loving one another, right? And so you're starting to feel like, right? So, so he's like be, like, be aware of how, what your actions are doing to each other. And that's what he's saying. Then he goes to the next part. One pers- person considers one day more sacred than the, another. So, 
he's talking about the second issue here. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own minds. So, okay, so on your paper, okay, I want you to write, I rest on Saturdays. You write, I work every day. Uh, we're pretending. Okay. <laughs> so if food wasn't enough to separate these two, okay, put a division in this church, now there's an issue of what day we rest on. Okay, so let's, awesome. Okay, so hold it up. Oh, Z's, okay. No, no, happy face. Put, make, that, make that into, oh, like, oh, I'm so excited to work. Otherwise, this sermon won't work. Okay, there we go. All right, so hold it up so we know which one, okay. So as a former Jew, the way that you, brought up, you were brought up is the only way I know how to worship God is by resting on the seventh day. I don't know any other way because that's my childhood until adulthood. This is the only thing I know, right? Over here, it's like I'm not aware of any of the commandments of the Old Testament because I was not raised a Jew, right? And as a matter of fact, I was raised to work really hard. And so now, here comes Saturday. Mitchell's working and you're resting. And Mitchell's like, hey, uh, Clarice, can you help me out? I, 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 need some, I need some help. And you're like, no, 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 no. I'm worshiping God by not working today. Over here, you're like, why are you working? You should be resting. Do you not love Jesus? And you're like, no, 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 I'm working. Like, this is the only thing I know how to do. Paul clarifies. He says this, next verse. Whoever regards one day as special, that'll be her, does so to the Lord. Like, the way that she worships God is by resting on Saturday. Whoever eats meat does so, that's you, to the Lord. You're eating meat and you're like, thank you, Jesus, for barbecue. This is so good. I love you so much, Lord. And you're eating, right? But he's celebrating by eating meat. He's talking, he's thinking about how good God is by eating meat, okay? For they give thanks to God, and whoever abstain does so to the Lord. Like, I'm not going to eat meat because I love God. So they're both eating and not eating because they love God. Uh, Abstain does so to the Lord. Oh, yeah. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So, So Paul summarizes everything in the very next verse, and this is very important. This is what he says. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. The minute you become a Christian, the minute you start following Jesus, everything you do is for God. So when he goes and buys meat at the marketplace, he's doing that for Jesus. When he's working all seven days, right, working really hard with a happy face, he's doing it because he's like, Everything I do, I'm doing it as if I'm working for God. So if I'm going to be building houses, if I'm going to be working on accounting, if I'm selling donuts, whatever it is, right? Every day I do it because I'm doing it because this is my act of worship. Over here, she's like, I'm not going to eat certain foods because that's how I tell God that I love him. I'm, you know, I'm going to rest on one day because I remember growing up, my parents taught me that that's how I'm going to love God. So this is kind of weird because he is totally convinced that loving God, you have to do A, B, and C. And she's totally convinced to love God, you don't do A, B, and C. And he says, these are disputable matters in the church. He says, do not separate over these things. And the instructions that Paul gives them, okay, is I want you to think about her. So when it comes to eating meat, and as you're eating meat, you see that her, her you know, she's really bothered by it. He says, don't eat meat in front of her. Eat it in the privacy of your own home because that is how you love somebody else. Good job, Right? And so, so, okay, and, 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 and Paul says, when you see him eating meat, just make sure you remember that that's how he loves God. So the next day, right, 
you're ready. It's like, when Mitchell comes to church today, and when he starts eating meat, I'm going to not judge him. I'm going to smile, and I'm going to sit next to him and have a conversation with him as he's eating his meat, and I'm going to try my best not to be bothered by it, right? And so here comes Mitchell, and he shows up, and he doesn't come with meat because he, he, he's like, I've got to do better to love my sister, right? And, and so you're like, oh, I expect you to bring meat. It's like, oh, I was expecting you to, you know, like, and all of a sudden there's this mutual sacrifice. So basically his solution for a divided church is mutual sacrifice. You always put love above any ritual that you think is your act of loving God. Because by mutually sacrificing each other, you are in that way worshiping God. Okay. Thank you so much. Give them a hand. You could keep the paper. I'll take the marker. <laughs> Thank you. What does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us today? Let's just say Daniel comes up and starts playing the guitar. And you're like, I was looking forward to an organ, man. Like, that's, that's my jam. Right? What, what happened to the, the organ? Because, you know, sometimes they play with their, you know, they, have, they, they play with their feet. And, like, that's, like, requires more skill than playing guitar. Like, that's how you worship God. And so you're sitting there like, I don't want to worship today because, you know, and there's a difference in worship styles. Or maybe you come from a tradition where when it comes to worship, you're running around the sanctuary. That's how I worship God. And so here you are worshiping God, and you see people running around you, and you're like, I can't focus on the music. I can't focus on Jesus. Maybe you come from a tradition where you have these big flags, and you're waving them, right? And it cuts in your face. You're like, oh, I can't see. What is this, right? And it's bothering you. What Paul would say in this situation is this. He would say, if you're the kind of person that likes to run around while worshiping, consider that it might be distracting to people around you. But for the person who is distracted by those things, Paul would say, let that person run around because that is the only way that person knows how to worship God. Mutual sacrifice. Maybe there's other things, like maybe language. You're like, when I come to church, I have to use some Christianese words. How art thou? You know, are you blessed? Like, who talks like that, right? And people are, some people are bothered by that. It's like, it, fe- it seems so superficial. It doesn't seem like a genuine greeting. It seems fake. But for other people, they're like, I don't like street language. In the church, we use specific language because that's how we love one another, right? And Paul would say, consider that your language might be actually offensive to other people. Oh, by the way, talking about, like, using profanity, cursing other people... This is a free country. You could say whatever word you want. You could curse as much as you want. I'm not saying, you know, you should, but, but the reason why we don't curse at church, uh, well, some of you do anyways, but the reason why we don't, okay, okay, is not because there's a rule that says you can't. You can say whatever you want, but you using profanity may offend other people, right? But you, as a person who gets easily offended by people using profanity, if somebody uses a bad word, instead of being offended by it, consider well, this is the only way this person knows how to fully express themselves, you know, and church is a place where we could be real with one another. Do you see how there's this mutual sacrifice, this mutual saying, like, I'm considering the other person. Maybe some of you guys stand on different ends politically. And you know that when you talk politics, the other person gets uneasy. And maybe for you, what you have to do is, I need to hold back on my opinions on these things. But when they do express these things, if you get offended easily, you might have to say, you know what, 
this is, the per- this is this person's way of saying, this is what I think is best for this country, and I think this is how God's light is going to shine in this world if this person gets elected or if this bill passes or whatever, right? Maybe it's a lifestyle. I live a different lifestyle than the person that's over here. And while I know that my lifestyle may be offensive to some people, right, this person who gets offended easily must, has to say, but I don't understand this person's lifestyle. But maybe this is how God created them. And maybe I have to accept it, right? Whereas on this side, it's like, I know my lifestyle is different than everybody else's here, right? And I know that if I flaunt it in front of people, they might stumble. And so my act of love is to, well, not be fake to who I am, but at least be more sensitive as to how I display it. You see, mutual sacrifice, mutual sacrifice. And Paul says, this is what love looks like. What he's saying is this, a community that is gathered around love is messy, you have, to con- you have to keep thinking about what other people think about everything you do. It's like, oh my gosh, like, what kind of, is this, this is not paradise, is it? Paul would say, you're right, it doesn't feel like paradise right now, but this is how you keep a community together. This is how you love one another. To think that your actions have no effect on the people around you is extremely selfish, and Paul says, that is not how you maintain a loving community. A loving community requires mutual sacrifice, and that is how we're going to save the church. And in turn, the church is going to save the world. Paul is very, very passionate about this. In almost all the letters that he wrote, he always talked about mutual submission, mutual sacrifice. He says, you need to do this in every way that you can think about. And then every time he talks about it, he never points to the Old Testament saying, the Old Testament said A, B, and C, so you have to do it that way. He never says, you have to be mutually sacrificing each other because that's what the Bible says. He never says that. He always points to Jesus and says, just like Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, you should sacrifice for one another. Just like how Jesus, in all of his glory being God, brought himself down to being a human just so that he could connect with you, we need to do the same. If you think you're higher than other people, then lower yourself like Jesus did so that you could connect with the people around you. To Paul, this is not just a great idea he had. To Paul, this is a central idea of what it means to be a believer and follower of Jesus. You would not believe the stories that are preserved for us, not just in the Bible, but in the history books of what the early church did and how they treated each other. In one of the books that we have in the Bible called the Book of Acts, they said that they gave away the stuff that they had, or they sold the stuff that they had, so the people who were needy had something to live off of. Because to them, these people who were rich, they didn't really care anymore about their status. They cared more about bringing people together, the unity of the church, and how that unity and that love could be spread to the community around them. So do you sense some kind of division in this church? Do you sense disagreements forming in this church? Do you sense that maybe if you express your opinion, then maybe people might actually turn their backs on you? Well, I think that if that's true, then, then this lesson, this sermon is very, very relevant for what we're going through. If we are going to call ourselves Christians, if we're going to call ourselves people who follow Jesus and his examples, then we have to become people who are willing to say, I'm willing to compromise, I'm willing to sacrifice, I'm willing to give up some of my core beliefs for the sake of maintaining unity in this community. Now, it doesn't mean you have to lie. That's not what we're saying here we'll eventually get to a place where we can share our honest opinions and people accept you for just who you are. But until we get there, we have to mutually submit to one another. Amen? All right, let's pray.